Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 66 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. Today, I'm speaking with retired FBI Special Agent Raymond J. Bethenis. Raymond served in the FBI for 25 years, from 1972 until 1997, primarily working in counterterrorism and counterintelligence. Shortly after the 9-11 attacks, he returned to teach the basic counterintelligence course at the FBI Academy at Quantico. During his career, he worked on several very high-profile espionage cases, including the investigations into Ronald Pelton and the Walker spy ring. Since retiring, Raymond has worked tirelessly as a historian, author, and researcher. He's published a number of scholarly articles on intelligence history and operates the website fbistudies.com. He's also published two books since 2007. I invited Raymond onto the podcast today to discuss one of those books titled The Origins of FBI Counterintelligence. But before we get into the discussion of the FBI's early days, I want to say a big thank you to everyone listening who's also supporting me on Patreon, including James H. and Brian A., your monthly contributions there help me keep this podcast going week in and week out. As a way of thanking my patrons, I offer a lot of great freebies and promotions, including free and discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. Patrons also get exclusive access to long-form articles of mine that aren't available anywhere else. If you haven't signed up for my Patreon yet, but you want to, just click the link in the show notes on whatever podcast platform you're listening to right now. Raymond, first of all, thank you for taking the time to sit down with me today. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm really glad that I was able to get in contact with you because I think that this is a subject that is long overdue for discussion here. Like I was telling you before we started recording, this is episode number 66, and it feels like I've touched on the subject of early days of FBI counterintelligence on a number of occasions, but finally the time was right and you know the person, the guest was right as well to do like a deeper look into this. So I'm glad that we're here today. Well, so am I. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Great. So <clears throat> like I just said in the intro there, you served as a special agent for 25 years, and then afterwards you became a historian of the profession itself. So at what point did you decide to take up the this new second career as a historian? Was it while you were still working with the FBI, or was it something that you just had a lot of free time to pursue after you retired? No, I, I've always had a very, very keen interest in, in the study of history, going back to my high school days. But the launch pad for my pursuing my doctorate, I got my doctorate in 2000, May of 2002 from Catholic University of America in history. But the launch pad really began in the latter part of my FBI career. I didn't really have many hobbies. My children were above the age where they needed me home at night. And so I began taking history courses back at the Catholic University, actually even before then at GW, George Washington University, and what was called the Defense Intelligence College at that time. 
And then I went back part-time in one course, one night a week at Catholic University. And it was a hobby, but a hobby became an obsession. And uh, eventually I went for the full product. I took courses. And then by the time I hit the age of 51, I was actually eligible to retire at the age of 51 with 25 years. I retired with the idea that I wanted to do my dissertation. So I did. And I worked part-time as a contractor, but for the most part, I worked on my doctoral dissertation. And my first book, The Origins of FBI Counterintelligence, is an outgrowth of that doctoral dissertation. Okay. Wow. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. You know, I have to admit that what you said about a hobby growing into an obsession, that kind of struck a chord with me because that is sort of what this has become for me over the past couple of years. It started with, you know, me telling a few interesting stories, you know, online on social media. And now it's turned into practically a a full-time job, you know, with these interviews that I do and all the articles that I write and that sort of thing. So I'm kind of right there with you in some ways with this, you know, this interest and this pastime turning into something much more than that over time. Yeah, it's a great journey, isn't it? it? It really is. It is a lot of fun. And I look forward to having, you know, even more spare time in the future because, you know, I don't, my kids aren't out of the house yet or anything like that. So I do have to divide up my time in some ways, but I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say I'm looking forward to my kids getting out of the house so I can read more books, but I am looking forward to devoting a lot more of my time to this one day, you know, many years in the future, like you've been. I really wish you well with it. Uh, Thank you. So with all of this research that you have done, you know, I have to imagine as someone who's not never been a part of the FBI, but I would assume that FBI documentation is very thorough going back to the beginning, but did you still find, did you still like uncover a lot of stuff that was not really well known within the organization or not well documented in, in like published scholarly articles and that sort of thing? Well, actually the answer to your question is yes. And we could probably be here for the next two hours talking about it. What I, what I discovered is I I discovered a number of things and they, they, they touch on the, well, they actually, they touch on the first, the first book that I wrote. And, you know, that deals with the issue of, uh, for example, Pearl Harbor, the FBI, super, the FBI SAC, special agent in charge, who was sent to Pearl Harbor to Honolulu, was sent there in 1939. He came from the South. His name was Robert Shivers. And I'll just be, I'll just give you a, a just a thumbnail sketch. He was sent there by J. Edgar Hoover. In 1939, just the summer before the war broke out, to take the pulse of the Japanese population in the Hawaiian Islands. There were 140,000 Japanese people of Japanese ancestry in the Hawaiian Islands. And it was a very grave concern on the part of National Command Authority that if we ever did go to war with Japan, that they could pose an internal threat toward the military out there and toward the court, toward the nation. It's a fifth column, so to speak. So Shivers was sent out there. And to be very frank with you, Shivers had never met a Japanese person in his life. Like I say, he was from the deep south. You know, it, it was completely alien to him. But he had a certain genius to him. And what he did was he began to develop, if you... Picture an image of your mind of the Olympic logo, those concentric circles intertwined. And that's what he did. He developed a a series of concentric circles of contact, both in the white community and in the Asian community. That would be 
the white community, it would be the Polynesian community, the Philippine community, the Japanese community, the Korean community, all of these communities out there that could pose perceived problem. And he worked with the, the, the churches out there. He worked with the YMCA, which was very important to the Asian community out there. And by after about a year or two of meetings and getting to know them and traveling throughout the islands, he came to the conclusion that the Japanese out there posed no problem at all. In fact, hmm. quite the opposite. They would actually be vigorously supportive. If, if the United States went to war against Japan, they would be vigorously supportive of the U.S. position. And he transmitted this information to J. Edgar Hoover throughout the period of time from 39 right up to 41. And then even after 41, he said, you have nothing to worry about. You can, com you can communicate to the military and to the president of the United States that you have nothing to be concerned about. As a result of that, he's a great hero in the Hawaiian Islands today. He is revered out there. It's about six years ago, I went out to Honolulu and I dedicated a plaque in his honor at the FBI office. But when you go and you talk to the people who understand the history of that, he's a great hero. So that's one of the very important discoveries that I, that I made while I was doing the research for this book. Wow. That is fascinating. I was not aware of that at all. I'm definitely going to have to look at that after uh, we finish this call. As a matter of fact, that's really interesting. Yeah. And it, when he was, in, in fact, uh, the, uh, the governor, when the governor of Hawaii at the time actually asked Shivers to take over control of the island and Shivers says, I can't do that. And then, wow. of course, what happened is the president within hours made it, had it come under military control. And so the commanding general out there became the governor of the island. But it's a fascinating story that is really not known outside of Hawaii today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It must not be very well known if I've never heard of it before myself. So, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll have to check into that. It's very cool. So, Raymond, obviously we're talking about the origins of FBI counterintelligence here, and it's really interesting to, for me to look at the origins of this organization for many reasons, but, you know, part of it is because, of course, that the, the very early pioneers, the plank owners, as they're called, you know, they set the tone for decades to come because they're, they're creating the, you know, the, the culture of the organization, they're creating the standard operating procedures and everything. So it's very clear to me from reading through your book that these first agents that you write about really had their work cut out for them going up against these networks and operations, you know, these foreign networks that were already well in place long before the FBI existed from, you know, countries and governments that were, had very well established, you know, espionage practices and procedures and experience as well. So it's, it seems like a very, very tough initial climb for the FBI right out of the gate. Would you agree with that? Oh, I would absolutely agree with it. It was a very, very steep learning curve. And it was, it was steep it's interesting, Justin, it was steep, but it was short. In order to answer the question, let's go back for a moment to, of course, we could go back to the start of the FBI in 1908. But what, what, I, what I'd prefer to do, and if you want to go back, we can certainly go back to that. But what I prefer to do is go back to 1924, because that was the year that J. Edgar Hoover, who was at the time only 29 years old, 
he was ordered or made acting director of the Bureau of Investigation, not Federal Bureau, but Bureau of Investigations. And the Bureau had just come off of a very, the Bureau and the Department of Justice had just come off of a very serious scandal uh, back in 1920 when they opened the General Intelligence Division. And they were doing, I would call it for general purposes, a vacuum cleaner kind of collection of data on American citizens and aliens in this country. And then what happened was arrests were made of aliens that were going to be deported. And when the judge looked at the probable cause for the arrest, he dismissed all of the charges against really against most of these aliens. Well, the American public was outraged over this. And it was a furious backlash that the federal government could violate the privacy and civil rights of Americans. They just they said that's not right. So the General Intelligence Division of the Department of Justice was promptly closed down. So by 1924, there was a new regime. Calvin Coolidge was the president and the I can't think of his first name, Stone. Harlan Stone became the general of the United States. Stone was a reformer. And Stone essentially ordered Hoover as acting director to close any intelligence investigation that was open at the time. So for the most part, 99% of them was, were closed. So what Hoover then begins to do is reform the Bureau of Investigation, clean out the dead wood, clean out the nepotism, get rid of the, the lazy people in the organization and begin to change it by professionalizing it. And this is what he does over the next, really over the next 10 years with a great push. And then, of course, the 1930s is the era of the gangsters. And in 1933, Franklin Roosevelt is elected president. He, he, he develops an omnibus law enforcement bill, which places the Bureau of Investigation not just doing what you and I call white-collar crime, because that's largely what they were doing, but now puts them at the forefront of conventional criminal investigations nationwide. So now he's developing a, a, a criminal law enforcement investigation, investigative organization. But now you have not heard me in the last five minutes talking to you about this, the one word about espionage. And that's true, we weren't focused on espionage. In 1934, the president ordered Hoover to begin to do, quote, intelligence investigations to determine the fascist threat in the United States. And then in 1936, he orders Hoover to do an intelligence and intelligence investigations to determine the communist threat. But again, not espionage. It's only in 1937 that Hoover has a case placed on his lap, which, does, which he did, which the Bureau handled terribly, absolutely terribly. And as a result of that gross mishandling of the investigation, the Bureau had to learn very quickly how to do this kind of work. Hmm. Okay, was that the the Rumrich case that is mentioned in chapter one of the book? Yes, that's exactly right. It's the Rumrich case. And the case was handled by a an investigator by the name of Leon Thoreau. And Thoreau was an excellent investigator. He was an outstanding investigator. But the one thing he had no experience on was counterintelligence and counterespionage. So as a result, 
he developed a lot of subjects, individuals who were clearly spying, but he handled it in a very conventional investigative way. He gave them subpoenas to appear to grand jury. And of course, when the day of the grand jury occurred, they had all disappeared. They had all hopped on on ships and fled back to Germany. So it was a huge black eye for Hoover. And Hoover was in those one of those positions where I think every man and woman has ever been in. And he said, look, it says a prayer to God. If you can get me out of this, I'll never do anything wrong again. (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't know. He said that, but I suspect he probably thought it. But that's when you begin to see him learning. And that's when you begin to see the organization, the organization changing. That was sort of like the big bang moment for the Bureau of Investigation, which was now the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, it, it sometimes takes a, a catalyst like that to create some real change, I guess. And sometimes the, the lessons that you take to heart the most are the ones that you learn the hard way, unfortunately. That's but. right. And, and, the, and the military learned it as well. And the State Department learned it. The, the military was stunned by Rumrich's confessions and by his statements. In fact, I mean, they suddenly learned that the Germans and probably the Japanese have penetrated most of the companies in the United States, which were doing what would be considered today classified projects for the government. New technologies on weaponry, new technologies on ships, new technologies on aircraft. In the early 30s, if you came over from Germany or you came over from anywhere, for that matter, from Europe, and you were a talented tool and die man, for example, if you showed up one time and you did your work, you got the job. There was no thought at all to a background investigation, no thought at all to polygraph investigation, nothing like this. This all begins to change after the Rumrich case. Yeah, and changed quickly, obviously. And, you know, I have to admit that having looked at so many different subjects over the past couple of years, the, the U.S. being kind of caught on the back foot by our adversaries is, is a pretty common occurrence across many different eras and many different organizations, unfortunately. But, well, were they successful then, in your opinion, in catching up pretty quickly? I mean, did the FBI kind of change to meet this new threat or did they have to go through like an extended period of growing pains even after this happened? No, this occurred figuratively. This occurred overnight. The State oh, wow. Department, the State Department controlled counterintelligence in the United States at that time. When they, when the Rumrich case came to a conclusion in December of 1938, Hoover made a very he had a he had a strong ally, Frank. Oh my goodness, I thought I'd never forget. It'll come to me. The Attorney General of the United States. Was a, was a staunch ally of Hoover. And Hoover and the Attorney General of the United States fought very vigorously in the spring of 1939 for control of counterintelligence. Up until then, if you were the Secretary of State and there was a spy case in the State Department, the State Department would decide whether or not they're going to handle it or not. If it was in the Department of the Interior, same thing. Department of the Treasury, same thing. Hoover and the attorney general said, they can't do it that way. You can't have it fragmented and be effective. So they fought a vicious battle, bureaucratic battle with state and other agencies 
Well, finally, in the June of 1939, they went to the president of the United States, Franklin Roosevelt. And Roosevelt had to issue what we would call today an executive order. And Hoover ordered all of his cabinet members to refer any allegations of espionage, sabotage, subversion, fifth column activity, any allegation, any hint had to be referred to the Federal Bureau of Investigation for investigation. It was essentially called the clearinghouse at that time. And that was the big bang moment for the FBI to take over control of counterintelligence in the United States. And in very rapid succession, he formed what was called the the Interdepartmental Intelligence Conference. Now, the Interdepartmental Intelligence Conference was a gathering of the FBI, the Military Intelligence Division of the War Department, and the, Department, and the Office of Naval Intelligence of the Department of the Navy. And they would meet once a week, once every two weeks. And I argue that is the moment. That group uh, is the start of what you and I call the intelligence community today. And it has grown to what we see today. And then at the same time, he, and this is in June, July of 1939, he orders all of his senior uh, back to Washington to begin to take classes in counterintelligence and counterespionage. And then at the same time, he also takes control of the Bureau's destiny with regard to legal attaches. He sends an FBI agent to Ottawa, Canada, work in the embassy. And then he also starts what's called the Plant Protection Program. And the Plant Protection Program was a program in which trained agents, agents would be trained to go into factories and examine the factory top to bottom. Uh, it would be a, com- a combination of doing background investigations on the employees, running their name against indices, indexes that the Bureau kept on fascist groups and communist groups, and going so far as to look at the lighting of the place, the safety of the place. Eventually, that was turned over to the military as the war as the war started. And then finally, in 39, what does he reopen to some criticism, but he reopened it, the General Intelligence Division that was closed in 1920. And that General Intelligence Division is still in operation today. Today, it's called the National Security Division of the FBI. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. So the organization, as you said, it had to change overnight, and it took on a a very aggressive posture across a lot of different fronts. Obviously, did he have any, I mean, did he have to rely on some extremely talented people within the ranks, or were they just kind of, you know, building on, I mean, were they just kind of making things up, essentially, or were they building on what the State Department had been doing, or, or what exactly? Well, no, what they did was they, they, you're absolutely right when he said he, he had talented people. He had very, very talented people. He had people like Shivers. He had people like Hugh Clegg, who had been with him for a very long time. He was the head of their training unit, a very, very highly intelligent man. He had another fellow by the name of Earl Connolly. And Earl Connolly was at the cutting edge of every major case that the Bureau had from 1925 up until 1950. Wow. One, of them was, one of them was Dean Milton Ladd, 
And Ladd was the actually the son of a U.S. senator who who died in 1939 while he was still in office. So he and another one by the name of Edward Tam. Ed Tam was a cum laude or summa cum laude graduate in law from Georgetown University in 1932, and he, in a matter of about five or six or seven years, became the number three man in the FBI under it was Hoover. And it was Clyde Tolson, and then it was Ed Tam. And Tam ran the day-to-day operations nationwide, investigative operations. And then in the late 40s, just as an aside, Tam was selected by President Truman as a judge on the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. So he had extremely talented men and women. And I mean, some women, they, they didn't, they weren't agents. But they were very, very talented. And you're absolutely right when you talk about an aggressive posture. Hoover took a very aggressive posture when it came to what they called counter-espionage. Counterintelligence wasn't a term in vogue at that point. But counter-espionage was, or counter-spying was. That, that was sort of the term of art. They were still trying at the same time to come together with their terminology at this time. So he obviously had to put all of these new procedures in a place and, and create a brand new organization practically out of scratch. But as I understand it, he was also a very big proponent of like cutting edge in- investigative techniques, wasn't he? By all means, Hoover had developed the FBI laboratory in the early 30s. That was another individual who I missed, Charles Appel. He was a documents examiner. And it was Charlie Appel who, who developed the FBI laboratory. And he, you know, the, and he also, Hoover also developed the idea, of course, it was not a new idea, but he applied it very vigorously, the idea of fingerprint and having fingerprint cards and having people fingerprinted. If you were to start a job, if you were to start a job with a defense contractor, you would immediately be fingerprinted and a copy would go to the FBI. So he was using, and we can talk about this in a few moments too, as we go on. He was using cutting-edge technology anywhere he could find it in any way he could find it. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's fascinating to me. Where, where does that kind of thing even come from at that stage? I mean, where would you seek out, you know, brand new ways of uncovering evidence or of, you know, investigating a crime? Were these things coming out of, like, college laboratories or techniques that were other country law enforcement agencies were already using or something else? All of the above. I found in my research uh, syllabus that he used, and you would see there were a number of college professors who were doing work in what you and I would call forensic science. And he began to pull this together. And I I don't want to get into it because I know I'll only confuse it because it's been a while since I thought about it. But he used universities. He sent one agent, a fellow by the name of Maurice Aker, in in the late 30s. He sent him to London to attend the Metropolitan Police Department senior officer's course on how to conduct investigations overseas. He had been working very closely throughout the 30s under the radar on counterintelligence or counterespionage cases with Stuart Wood who was the head of the RCMP in Canada. 
And I say under the radar because he had to do this without the knowledge of the State Department because they didn't want the police interfering in foreign diplomatic matters. So he actually had to work under the radar with Stuart Wood. Anywhere he could find someone credible or the Bureau could find someone credible who had something positive to offer, it's safe to say that he would reach out to that person and, and have them come in and begin to train our personnel. Wow, that must have been a, a godsend. Did that? Did all of these techniques and all of this work, did this lead to them kind of gaining an effective hold over the foreign intelligence activities inside the United States? Or was there just you know, so much going on that they were kind of fighting the tides the entire time? No, it, it was, it proved to be very, very valuable. Not only, and, and it's this, this sort of cross-disciplines, these new techniques and these new methodologies and these new technologies were directly ap applicable to criminal investigations as well. One of the new technologies that Hoover developed, and I'm not completely conversant with this, was photography. The Bureau developed new and sophisticated methods of surveillance photography. When you read my book, the book about the Duquesne case, that's where it all kind of came together. All of these, all of this effort came together in terms of new technologies with new photographic techniques that weren't available in other countries. So the Bureau was a forerunner at this. The Bureau was also a forerunner when it came to what we take for granted today, car radios. In other words, communication from car to car. That was completely alien in the early 30s. And they began to develop that kind of technology as well. So this, and they began to develop new technology when it came to telephone intercept. Wiretapping was still in its infancy at that time. So they, and, and, and trying to develop wiretapping on a subject when there is no legal basis for it, before we even had laws connected with that, before you could even work in cooperation with the local phone company, they had to do this. So this was the Wild West <laughs> you know, that they were dealing with at this time. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. I mean, they were jumping in at just a, a time of technological revolution and enemies arriving from overseas all the time. I mean, like these networks that we talked about, like the Duquesne network. And I'm glad you mentioned that because in some ways that brings us full circle. The very first episode of this podcast was about Fritz Duquesne. And so, you know, he lived quite a life, but we, of course, talked quite a bit about his his spy ring that operated here in the United States leading up to and during World War II a little bit. But do I recall correctly, since you mentioned the photographic techniques, what were some of the most famous photos taken of him? And I guess it was that guy Siebold, like they were taken through a one-way mirror while they were meeting or something like that. Is that, is that correct? Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. But and it's been, and it, they were taken through and then re, they had, they knew they knew that they were taking these photographs and the photograph, the, and it wasn't just photographs. We're talking about video, you know, in other words, not snapshots. These were, he developed to the Bureau developed the methodologies through a one-way mirror to take photo, to take video. And of course, when that is shown to a jury who had never seen video before, you know, I mean, real video, they may, they may have seen movies on, in the theater, but when they see video like that, it was very powerful when it came to the prosecution's case. And the other thing that they did, which I thought was very clever, the, they were not allowed to record conversations. In other words, you and I, 
think today, well, okay, we'll put a microphone, we'll get a judge to give us a warrant and get a, get a warrant and we'll put a microphone in the room and the microphone will record the conversations. Well, there was a case called the Nardone case and the Nardone case essentially prohibited recording conversations unless both parties were aware that the conversations were being recorded. So what they did at the same time that the video was being recorded through the one-way mirror, an FBI agent by the name of William Friedman, there were probably others, but he's probably he's the, among the most famous, he testified at the trial. He's listening at the wall, through the wall. And the wall, the Bureau designed the wall of the office so thin that you could easily hear the conversations without uh, any type of technical enhancement. So what he's doing, he's listening to the conversations and he took shorthand. So he's shorthanding the conversations back and forth and then he converts that into a transcript. Wow. And he, testifies, he testifies that I was there when that video was recorded and this is what they were saying. <laughs> hmm. oh, that's quite a workaround there. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, and that's how they, that's how they, and then my other point is the technology of the, in terms of coming to grips with new challenges, when they were re transmitting and receiving information from the House and Center Port, Long Island, they were confronted with major issues that they had never been confronted with. The most obvious is feed material. The Germans are in contact with the person they think is they think is the Seabold, and they're saying, "Well, we need this, and we need that, and we need this." And now the government, the Department of the Army or the War Department or the Navy Department, is confront, confronted with the fact that, "Holy cow, they know this stuff. How are we going to give them secrets which we want to keep, <laughs> you know, and keep the case running?" So they had problems with that. And then, of course, what else do they want? They want to know when and where ship convoys are forming up and when ships are leaving the Brooklyn Navy Yard. The Brooklyn Navy Yard at the time and would become even larger. But during the war, the Brooklyn Navy Yard was the largest Navy Yard in the world. They were shipping. Ships were going out of there to Africa and Europe and into the Pacific. And they wanted to know when the ships were going out. So in point of fact, what they would do is they would they they're now they're confronted with with this type of a thing how do you get feed material they never had this problem before and then what they would have to do is say okay well the uss manhattan just left brooklyn and it's bound for great britain it's going from here to here and then what they would have to do is notify the manhattan uss manhattan take a different route okay <laughs> so you can avoid the submarine wolf packs along the way so it was a really big deal, and it was a it was a very very complicated multi agency in, endeavors, so to speak. It wasn't just the bureau. So the bureau at that time starts with the with the Duquesne case starts what I refer to and I lecture as tactical deception. They're deceiving the enemy on a tactical level, not a strategic level yet. That'll come later on in the war, but on a tactical level, they're deceiving the enemy. And the enemy fortunately bought it hook, line, and sinker. Hmm. Well, that's that's a, a major, major success for them. And it's still a relatively young organization. 
at that point. But I guess, like you had mentioned, that they just learn a lot very, very quickly, especially with Hoover at the helm there. Yeah, and I, and Hoover Hoover was very fortunate. Hoover Hoover ran the organization, but Hoover did not run these investigations. Uh, I would take on anybody who said that Hoover ran these investigations. He did not run these investigations. Hoover sat at the top running the organization and dealing with other agencies of the government. But the day-to-day nitty-gritty work of the organization was run by Tamp. He ran the day-to-day organizations and and his assistant directors ran the organization. Ran the operation, the investigations, let's put it that way. Yeah, that, that might have been the best from what I understand. I know we'll, we'll talk about Hoover a little bit more soon, but I know yeah. he's quite a divisive guy in, in some ways. We've been singing his praises so far, but that wasn't all to him, his character, I don't think. Yeah, um, exactly. Ray, I do, I do want to ask you, the book is just, you know, filled to the brim with case after case. So I know that we can't go through all of them by any means, but there is one person I want to talk about. I've, I've been wanting to talk about on the podcast for quite some time. That's Walter Kravitsky, the Soviet defector. Can you talk a right. little bit about the Bureau's interaction with Kravitsky? Yeah, I think the Bureau did a, I don't think, based on my work, the Bureau did a very poor job with Kravitsky. And they didn't understand Kravitsky. They didn't understand, they had had no experience with an NKVD officer, senior officer. And I think it was complicated, and I'm getting, I'm going out a little bit on a limb here. I don't think they had the best interviewer handling him, so to speak. Hmm. They didn't have someone, they didn't have someone who had a depth of experience to begin to probe somebody like him nor did they understand the complexity of the experience of someone like Kravitsky, who was, a, who was, let's face it, he was a defector. And the complicated mental, emotional, and psychological baggage that he brought with him. And it would seem to me that had they had the experience and knowledge, and you only accrue this over a period of time. I'm not defending anybody. I'm just putting it in context. That way, the, the, we deal with today, we deal with defectors much differently than we dealt with it at, at, at that time. At that time, there was no mechanism for the government accepting defectors. Today, the CIA handles defectors and they have a very professional process by which they do this. They have psychologists involved and psychiatrists involved and people who are very skilled at resettlement and dealing with families. None of this existed at this time. And the proof was in the pudding because later on, and of course, the other thing was he was under the care of Ivan, which is Isaac Don Levine, who was a a journalist. It was a journalist who actually was kind of taking care of him. And then eventually what happened was the British learned about him and he went to Great Britain and he provided the British with some very good information. One of them, I think, was John King. I think his first name was John. And John King, he he reported on John King and John King was a communicator. He was in the in the foreign office who had been recruited by the NKVD. So the bureau, it, it was not a high watermark for the bureau at the time, and you, you've got to you've got to call them out on it. 
Uh, so, I mean, that's my take on it. Yeah, I did. That is one thing that surprised me a little bit from your book was that you don't shy away from criticizing, you know, missteps and miscalculations and that sort of thing, including, you know, all the way to the last page, really, of the book. So it's, it seems like a pretty objective look at what the Bureau accomplished and, and failed to accomplish, you know, over the years. But Ray, if you don't mind, can you tell for the people that are not really familiar with Kravitsky already, what was his motivations for defecting in the first place? I know, like you said, he was an NKVD agent, you know, working under Stalin, and he came over prior to World War II. But can you kind of expand a little bit on that for the listeners? Yeah, I'd have to go back and refresh my memory. But basically, he was a foreign, he was an NKVD, basically a, a, a Soviet intelligence officer in the 1930s. And he was extremely talented. And he ran NKVD operations in Western Europe in the 1930s. There's a, a debate. Was he a colonel? Whether Was he a general? Who knows? But he was part of their foreign directorate, their foreign apparatus for collecting intelligence. His job was to go out and recruit sources, and he was very effective at it. What happened was he, like probably hundreds of others, we'll never know, maybe thousands of highly competent, skilled intelligence officers, came under suspicion by Stalin. And this is what we refer to today as the purge. And they started being called back for consultation. And they would get a letter saying, come back to Moscow. And they'd come back to Moscow. They'd be immediately arrested. And a, there'd be a quick show trial and a bullet would be put in the back of, in the back of their head. Well, they knew the rumors were floating around that this was what was happening. And then what happened was one of his closest friends, a, a very important NKVD officer, Ignace Reese, R-E-I-S-S, -S, got his letters to come back and he refused to come back. And his body was found along the side of a road, shot multiple times in Lausanne, Switzerland. That was the message for Kravitsky. Kravitsky fled. He had been putting money away, slowly putting money away in, a, in an account in Paris. And then when he found out about Reese, who was, his, I think I mentioned, he was very close, one of his closest friends, he, that caused Kravitsky to flee. And then he came to the United States and then he came under the umbrella of Levine, who was, a, who was a, an anti-communist journalist and began to use Kravitsky for his sources for many of his articles. He wasn't the only one who fled. One of the very famous ones, including as well as Kravitsky, was Alexander Orlov. And Orlov was a very senior NKVD officer who was running Soviet operations in Spain during the Spanish Civil War. What he did was he changed his name and he came into the United States an alias and basically burrowed his way into American society. And it was only about 16, 17 years later in the early 50s that he surfaced in Cleveland, Ohio. And it's really a, quite a remarkable story. But both stories are really quite remarkable. Yeah, they, they certainly are. And I haven't spent as much time reading about some of those events in the 1930s as I would like to. And it's, and it's obvious that you have a really good handle on all of that from all of your research, but some really, really amazing stuff was happening. And we were kind of struggling to catch up with events at that time, it seems. So Kravitsky comes over and he and he is very, very public. I think he goes in front of 
Congress, doesn't he? And I know he writes a book. He writes an autobiography about his time in Soviet well, intelligence. And and then you mentioned that he was, but he was somehow kind of mishandled by the Bureau. Yeah, I, I, yeah I've looked at his file. Unless his file is incomplete and I don't handle it, what I have certainly suggests that they mishandled him. They didn't understand it. They had no they had no grasp of the concept of the defector. Now, that'll change later. That's interesting, too, because uh, are you familiar with Viktor Kravchenko? The name, I can't think of anything about him at okay. the moment, but I've certainly heard that name. Kravchenko, for example, Kravchenko worked in Washington, D.C., and he was a, an official with the Purchasing Commission, what you and I know as Lend-Lease, and he defected. And there were, because Russia was our ally, there were voices in our government said, well, let's send him back. And the Bureau, the Bureau and the War Department lined up and said, no, you're not sending him back at all. Because he provided, he wasn't an intelligence officer, but he provided information. But then the Bureau at that time, you know, when, when I was in the Bureau during the Cold War, we actively tried to recruit intelligence officers and we tried to recruit foreign diplomats and we were really, we were successful at it. But at this time, we were just putting our toe in the water. You know, the idea of an FBI agent undercover contacting an intelligence officer, that was alien at the time. But they stood up and they, and Kravchenko remained in the United States and had a, had a fairly successful life as the best I can remember. But at that time with Kravitsky, it was a very, very different situation altogether. But we clearly mishandled it. Hmm. So what ended up happening to Kravitsky in the end? Well, Kravitsky, you know, depending on what day it is and who you talk to, did he commit suicide or was he murdered in a wet operation by the Russians? We don't know. He was found in a hotel room with a bullet in his head. And the hotel was right near Union Station and Capitol in Washington, D.C., the official finding was that it was a suicide. From what I remember having read, he actually bought a weapon in Virginia, and the weapon was with him, I believe, at the time of the when the body was discovered. And the bullet, I believe, came back and matched that weapon. But the, his door was locked. They had to break their way into the hotel room. So the eternal question is, is was this a a wet affair on the part of Soviet assassins who managed to do such a great job that they made it appear like it was a suicide or did Kravitsky commit suicide? It wouldn't surprise me that Kravitsky committed suicide, you know, because of, and I'm not saying he did, I'm not saying what happened, but I, because of the pressures that these people are under. I mean, it is excruciating the pressures that, that they're under once they make that decision to go. Before we go on, I want to let you all know about a new educational tool you're not going to want to miss. It's the Gray Man Briefing Classified. By now, I think I know my listeners pretty well, and take it from me, this briefing is exactly the news and educational reference source that you've been looking for. You'll get breaking news updates from all over the world on topics including planned protests and riots, low-intensity conflicts, natural disaster alerts, cyber attacks, supply chain disruptions, and more. You'll also get access to articles that help you build your own skills, including urban survival, home security, counter surveillance, escape and evasion techniques, and more. And this is much more than just a newsletter in your inbox. Joining the Gray Man Briefing Classified also includes invitation-only channels on the Telegram and Signal apps for convenient real-time updates. 
The newsletter subscription is normally $5 per month, but if you use the code GBCSPYCRAFT, you can save 20% each month for the life of your subscription. I'm already a member myself and have been reading and learning a lot since I first subscribed. Look it up yourself at graymanbriefing.com. That's gray with an A, graymanbriefing.com. And use the discount code GBCSPYCRAFT to save 20% right from the start. And remember that they leave family behind. And by leaving family behind, that family can pretty much expect that they're going to be eliminated as well. So there may have been profound guilt. I don't know. Right, right. You can totally see both ways. And it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, he was he was killed, obviously. But it's it's also when you really try to put yourself in his shoes, see how the pressure can build up to be too much. You'll probably never see any of your relatives ever again. You'll never go back to your homeland ever again and, and live to talk about it anyway, unless you're, you know, kidnapped by them and taken back for a show trial or something like that. And, you know, he has no one. He's left everything behind and he's sitting there alone in a hotel room waiting for, you know, one of the mobile groups from the NKVD to catch up with him or something like that. So under those circumstances, you can see how he might want to, you know, kind of permanently put it into that pressure. But we also know about those groups traveling around and killing people and their, you know, very, very long history of killing people and making it look like a suicide or making it look like an accident or an undetectable poison. So it could totally be either one of those things. Honestly, it's a really, really interesting case. Yeah. And it's interesting. What I find interesting also is that over the years, to my recollection, maybe maybe you know better than me on this, that no one has ever come out and said, to my knowledge, either way. We're coming on almost, my goodness, we're coming almost on 80 or 90 years. There was nothing in the Matrokin archives. I've heard nothing from defectors who have gone back and looked at the records. You know, it, it, it's entirely possible that Stalin was as surprised as everybody else to learn of Kravitsky's death. <laughs> right, right. Must have made his day anyway, if that was a surprise. Yeah, exactly. Right. Score one for us, right? <laughs> yep, yep. It's one of, the, one of the many, many loose ends of that period of history that we'll probably never get a satisfactory answer on. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I swear, you know, a lot of times I hate to go off on a tangent, really, but a lot of times you get an answer and then you have to wonder, well, is that, you know, is that intentional disinformation or is that someone taking credit for something that they didn't do or, or what? So it's um, exactly it can be frustrating. Right. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, yeah, it's a fascinating story. And I would I would love to know more about that case. But if it hasn't come out in the past 80 years, I kind of doubt that it's going to come out, you know, in the next 12 months or so. I'm, I'd like some immediate gratification on that, but I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> I agree with you. So so kind of going into switching gears a little bit, moving into the actual war, because you mentioned Pearl Harbor earlier, but once the U.S. got involved in the war, how did the FBI contribute to the overall war effort as a stateside law enforcement agency? Well, you know, you one of your first questions when we started was anything new that I found. Now, this is not in my this is not in my my book that we're referring to, and I don't want, I don't want to be unfair, but in this in, when it came to the when it came to my I end my first book at Pearl Harbor, and I argue that the bureau wasn't aware of it at the time, but with the end of the Duquesne case, the back of German espionage was broken. The Germans never had an ability to reconstitute a a network of agents here in the United States following Pearl Harbor. 
They never had a they, they never had an effective stay behind group. But what happened was, and I I found this. Can I just talk about a little bit about this aspect of the second book? Would you, do you oh, mind? Oh, by all means. Yeah, I forget. I've read a lot of your stuff, a lot more than just what's in this book. So I kind of forgot where it left off at, honestly. But it's all fascinating. Well, if you remember, if you remember with the radio station in Centerport, yes, that shut down around July or August of 1941. And it shut down because they made the arrest. They kept it going for a couple more weeks to see if they'd be communicating, but they shut it down. Well, what happened was at that time, the Bureau had about five or six double agents having nothing to do with the Duquesne case. And they were percolating along. And in July or August of 1941, an Argentine businessman by the name of Jorge Mosquera arrives at the U.S. consul in Montevideo, Uruguay. Now, I won't go into the background because it's too involved, but he was a businessman. He was an Argentine businessman in, in Germany who wanted to leave Germany. Germany would not was not allowed to leave until he agreed to cooperate, and he left all of his money behind. So he agreed to cooperate, basically, to get out. He goes to Montevideo, Uruguay, which you know is just not very far from Buenos Aires. He walks into the U.S. consulate and he says, I was sent out by the Germans and I'd be willing to help you. So the consulate contacted Edward Tam and Tam in a nanosecond said, send him up here. We'll pay his freight up here. So he came up and he sat down around September, October. Again, with my friend, William Friedman, who spoke German. He was a German. He spoke fluent German, and he was a farmer from Oklahoma. How do you believe that one, right? <laughs> but he comes from a German family in Oklahoma. He sat down with him, and he told him about the fact that his job was to set up a radio station. to try to get to America and set up a radio station. So what the Bureau then did is, they went even further out on Long Island. And for you to really understand Long Island, New York, at that time, I always urge people, don't, you don't have to read the whole book, although it's a wonderful book. It's on Modern Library's top 100 books of the uh, biographies of the 20th century. It was called The Power Broker by Robert Carroll. And before the war, for a person to go from Manhattan out out onto the island be like going to Mars, okay? Because all of the plutocrats on the, the, the fabulously wealthy who owned the states out there and the farmers didn't want riffraff coming out there. So they made it impossible to get there, which made it ideal for the Bureau. But what they did was they went out probably about another 30 or 40 miles beyond Centerport to Wading River, New York. Wading River is a postage stamp. It's just a crossroads, but it's right on the oh, and the, it, it, it it's right on the north shore of Long Island, overlooking Long Island Sound. The property out there is beautiful today, and the bureau got a place called the Owen Farm, and the house on it was called the Benson House. And beginning in January of 1942, they transmitted double agent messages, messages filled with miscalcul mis misdirection, complete falsehoods to 
the Germans in Hamburg and the Germans believed the whole thing. Now, what was the value? It ran from January of 1942 until around June of 1945. If you remember, the British and the, uh, the Allies came in and the war ended on May 8, 1945. But the Bureau was ordered to keep the radio operating because there was great fear on the part of the Allies that Hitler would flee to Bavaria, his readout at Berchtesgaden, and run a guerrilla war. Well, as it turns out, we know that didn't happen. So the, the radio was shut down in June of 1945. But what it did was it supported, and this is one of the things I'm, I'm very proud of, of finding this, the Bureau, and I don't think the Bureau was even aware of this, or Bureau historians today are even aware of it on their own, is the fact that the Bureau played a role, an important role, yes, pivotal role, no, but a role in Operation Fortitude. And we know that Operation Fortitude is what? The deception campaign in the run-up to the Normandy invasion. Hmm. It, played a, it played a role in the Normandy invasion. It played a role in Operation Bluebird. Operation Bluebird was the operation commanded by Admiral Nimitz for the invasion of the Marshall Islands to confuse the Germans and uh, to confuse the Japanese into believing that the attack would come through the Curiel Islands. And it also played a role, I believe, in convincing the president of the United States to pursue the atomic bomb. So it it was a very, very big deal. It really was. It Right now, if you have uh, listeners who live on Long Island, they can go to Wading River. The house is still there. It's located at a place called Camp DeWolf. And Camp DeWolf is a retreat facility for young children and people who are just getting away to for a retreat and conferences. And it's in Wading River, New York, and it's owned and operated by the Long Island Diocese of the Long Island Episcopal Diocese. But you can go there and see the plaque that we put up on the uh, side of the building and get a sense of what it was like there at that particular time. But now I mentioned to you earlier that the, the Duquesne case was a classic example of tactical deception. The Benson House or the case, the Benson House operation in Wading River was a classic case of strategic deception. Mm, yeah. Okay, yeah. Enough, you, you get you get my point. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I shared a, a video clip a little while back on Instagram because I have a lot of people that follow stories there. And you're in that documentary. I've seen the video of you standing at the Benson House and down in the basement where the Buick engine was and everything. Right. That's okay. a great clip, honestly, and um, a lot of people have seen that since I shared it. So, are you saying then that you can go up and visit the house? Are there like tours available or anything like that, or you can just go? Oh yeah. And oh yeah. A lot has happened. Again, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that they are very receptive up there. The gentleman up there, Father Matt Tees, he's a recently ordained Anglican priest, and he runs the facility. We did the ceremony up there, putting the plaque up in June of, 9th of 2014 to commemorate the 70th anniversary of the Normandy invasion. Well, since then, 
Matt contacted me and said, we'd like to see if we can uh, get the house on the New York State, I'm trying to think, of New York State list of historic places. Mm -hmm. So I worked at, and, you know, we, we put the radio station on, and it, it, it's on the New York State list of, of historic places. And as a result of that, the federal government has placed it on the National Trust. It's on the National Trust of, and I'm sure I'm using the wrong terminology, but the National List of Historic Places. So we're very, very proud of it. And people can go up there. They, we, as I say, we just had a, a ceremony. I won't go into detail on it, but we're learning more and more about this facility all the time. And uh, a week ago, we had a, we had a ceremony up at the diocese headquarters in Garden City with regard to this. But people will go up there. They're very receptive. You can see photographs up there. They may even take you down into the basement to see the block of cement that is still there. They give out brochures. It's now on the, the Long Island History Tour. So, yeah, it's a pretty big deal, Justin. Okay. That's that's fantastic. I've had it bookmarked on my map for a while now, just in case I'm in the area, but I haven't made it out that far onto Long Island recently, but I've, it's a beautiful house and it's a beautiful spot, regardless of the actual intelligence history there. But I would certainly love to go and walk around inside the house and hear it from the diocese there as well. So hopefully I get a chance to do that one day. Yeah, if you stand in the back, you have literally a 180 degree uh, view of Long Island Sound and Connecticut, which is 18 miles across Long Island Sound. And on a clear day, if you're lucky, you can see submarines coming into New London, Connecticut. That's oh, a, really? That's a, oh, wow. oh, yeah, that's really? how breathtaking the site is. It really oh, wow. is a, a gorgeous, gorgeous piece of property. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've got to see it now, definitely. I'll, I'll definitely make time to pick <laughs> up there sometime soon. So I do want to ask you and just switch gears again just a little bit. We talked quite a bit about Hoover at the beginning of this interview, but, you know, we talked a lot about the positive changes that he made to the Bureau, but he's got a, a, a very, I guess I'd call it a, a checkered perspective. You know, people, people have a lot of criticisms of him as well, and I don't know how well informed those criticisms are, but I would love to hear it from you. What kind of legacy did Hoover leave the Bureau with in the end? Like, how is he viewed within the Bureau, even to these days, as such a tremendously influential leader? Yeah, I, 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 I consider him, and I say this unabashedly, I consider him a great man. He, had, he was a man with feet of clay, no question about that. He was very flinty. He was very, very thin-skinned, and he was very, very autocratic. And I worked for a, a gentleman by the name of Cartha Deloach. And when you get off, you can look him up. His name is Deke Deloach, and Deke was one of his senior senior, senior officials in the in the 40s and in the 50s and on into the 60s. Very important guy. And I knew Deke very, very well in later life. He later went, he retired, he became an executive with Coca-Cola, passed away a few years ago. But he called Hoover the best tap dancer in Washington. <laughs> and that's, that's exactly what he was. He, he, he knew where all the skeletons were buried. And he was a Washingtonian to the core. He was born and raised in Washington. And I, I, I think within the Bureau, I can't really speak for that other than to say it seems like they, they, they regard the legacy that he created, but they are also operating a little bit on tender hooks because of the controversies that swirled about him later on. Sure, uh, sure. 
understandable. Yeah, and I also find it interesting that here you have this giant of 20th century, uh, and it's interesting that a good biography has yet to be written about him. A good biography has not been written on him. Well, a biography, first of all, has not been written on him probably in the last 25 years. And I've been in touch with some authors who I think are struggling with his legacy because the, I don't want to get down into the weeds, but the more in in this post-Cold War era, I mean, there are people now who are 25 and 30 years old who don't even remember the Cold War. And in this post-Cold War era, there are, there's a lot of, a lot of confusion now, a lot of what they vilified Hoover for shortly after his death, the long knives came out after his death and went after him. But now a lot of stuff is coming out of the Soviet, former Soviet Union that says, whoa, we were penetrated. You know, issues like Venona. You're familiar with Venona, I'm quite sure. Oh, the Venona transcripts? Yes, definitely. The Venona transcripts, the Vasiliev Mm -hmm. notebooks, what's coming out about Vasiliev, the the information, the, the Freedom of Information Act, which was passed in the early 70s has produced a, a, a huge body of literature regarding Soviet activities. The story of Operation Solo and what we learned from the Morris and Jack Childs and other sources puts Hoover in a much more complicated and complex view, so to speak. My biggest complaint about him was he stayed too long. It, it, it happened. But he was one of these individuals who just stayed too long, and he never wrote a he never wrote a memoir. There just hasn't been a good biography of him, a good scholarly biography of him to put him in the context of the 20th century. Hmm. The reality is he built the most important law enforcement organization in the world, and that's his legacy. Yeah, certainly. I mean, his name is is fully intertwined with the FBI. I would say that people that know nothing else about the FBI could probably say that J. Edgar Hoover was the first major director for the organization, even knowing hardly anything else because of how how closely his name is, is aligned with the FBI. You know, you mentioned that, that there hasn't been a good biography. So I'm looking over my shoulder right now on my bookshelves, and I've got two biographies of his. I haven't actually read either of them yet, though, because, you know, Always have more books than I have time to read, unfortunately. But right, right. Uh, one of them I noticed. I'm looking at it right now, and the title of it is "Puppet Master" by Richard Wright. And that, yep. you know, quite frankly, that that tells me that there's it's not going to be a glowing portrayal of his time Correct. as the director, of course. But that doesn't mean that it's also full of inaccuracies either. So no, I'm, and I'm not saying I'm not saying that at all. No, I mean he's got a he's got a a complex legacy to to say the least, but. Were there any issues? I mean, I think that you mentioned early on, you know, the Bureau was kind of born out of this scandal with the original Bureau of Intelligence, the BI, and the the privacy violations that they were being accused of early on. I mean, right. that was kind of a hallmark of his as well, right? Well, that's right. That's exactly right. And I think that's that's part of the that's part of the complexity of the of the issue. One of his serious weaknesses was the fact that he was numbers driven. 
and a lot, for example, stolen cars is what immediately comes to mind. And he would go up to Capitol Hill and he said, we recovered this many stolen cars. And he had a lot of supporters on Capitol Hill. And of course, he'd get his budget every year. But then the question was, was this really that important a priority when, in point of fact, maybe we should have been looking at organized crime a little sooner than we did? Mm-hmm. But then you have to say to yourself, well, wait a minute, the laws had yet to catch up with effective organized crime investigation. For example, we never really got a good effective wiretapping authorization until the late 1960s. So, you know, it's complicated. It's all I'm saying. And clearly he had his weaknesses. He was a he was clearly a man with the feet of clay who, who really he should have stayed. He should have left earlier. He should have mm-hmm. retired. Earlier. But he, the reality is he had nothing. He was a bachelor. The bureau was his mistress. If he had retired, he probably would have died the next day because he would have had nothing to do. He had this was his the bureau was his whole life. Yeah, there there are a lot of fellas out there like that. I'm afraid to a, to a lesser extent, you know, maybe they don't leave the kind of, you know, intergenerational impact that he did, but yeah, there's a lot of people that they they throw themselves into their work and and never look back. Really. Uh, I'm curious back. since you started yeah, with right. the bureau in 72 and he left or he passed away in 72, did you meet him? Was he at your No, your I uh, no, no, he passed away. I always get him confused. He passed away I think February 2nd or February 3rd. And I entered on duty on July 17th. And L. Patrick Gray was the director at the time. Mm-hmm. If you remember, L. Patrick Gray was embroiled in his own scandal, although we didn't know it at the time, with Watergate and what he ah. was doing in effect with Watergate. I came in. I, my class was unique in the Bureau because we had the first two women who became FBI agents in my class. Oh, wow. Interesting. Were they, were they yeah. were classmates of yours? I mean, you knew them well? I didn't know them well, no, because, you know, you're there for 15 or 16 weeks and you're just trying to keep your head above water. And we all mm-hmm. are. And then they went off to their offices. I, I never really saw them again. One was Sue Rowley and she was a former U.S. Marine. And the other one was Joanne Pierce and she was a former Roman Catholic nun. Oh, wow. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah. Yeah, and Joanne, Susan left, I think, after about eight or nine years, and Joanne retired. I don't know what year she retired, but she retired. She married and retired. She she didn't, we didn't recruit her out of the convent, as many people like to believe, <laughs> but she actually had left the, the, the convent and was working for the Bureau, so she was a new hire. And the funny part about the whole thing was that we were the first class also to go through the new academy in Quantico. And what was, and that's a whole story on its own because the Bureau had no policies, had not given one thought, as far as I can tell, to women becoming FBI agents. So the locker facilities that we had had no female locker rooms. Mm. (laughs) So you have all of these issues. Yeah, you know, and so anyway, yeah. So I came in and I never met Hoover. I came in under the L. Patrick Gray uh, regime and spent the next 25 years with him. Wow. Wow. Fascinating. So I did a previous episode, just recorded it last month, and that episode was about the Pinkerton's National Detective Agency. And during that time, I spoke with the guest, and he mentioned some possible 
similarities between Alan Pinkerton and J. Edgar Hoover, especially in terms of like managing the organization's image. So I'm curious, I don't know how much you've studied about Alan Pinkerton, although I'm certain you're familiar with him, but do you see any similarities there at all between Pinkerton, you know, the, the previous century and Hoover and the way that they kind of tried to care for the organization through thick and thin and, and grow that brand and grow that image? Uh, I, I know very little about Alan Pinkerton, except what I, you know, some stuff, things I've read in, with regard to the Civil War and later the Pinkerton Detective Agency. But there's no question in, uh, in my mind about Hoover, Hoover shaping the image of the FBI. I didn't, I didn't read them, but I had an opportunity one time to go through the, the files, the file rooms at the National Archives out at College Park. And there are just boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes and rows and rows and rows and files and files of the FBI and the deal, essentially the media in 1930. If Hoover wasn't a law enforcement officer and a lawyer, he would have been excellent on Madison Avenue. He had a certain skill in helping to shape the image of the Bureau and him as the leader of the Bureau. And this all begins during the 1930s with the G-Man as a counterbalance to the crime that's spreading across the United States. Hoover was a real glamour boy. Hoover would be at the Stork Club in New York. He would be at the theater in New York. He'd be written up in the New York Times, the New York Journal American, the New York Herald Tribune, in the personalities section. And this is where he begins to shape the image of the G-Man, the guy with the three-piece suit and the snap rim hat carrying a Thompson submachine gun. And that's, you know, who's either a lawyer or an accountant, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And it, yeah, so he had that skill and he really promoted that to the organization's betterment really in the long run. Yeah, I would, I would say so. That's a very indelible image. I mean, that's exactly what you think of when you think of an FBI agent anytime before, you know, 1970 or something like that. I would imagine you kind of picture them in that, in that traditional G-man role, which was totally intentional on his part, of course. Exactly. That's exactly right. And that's how he shaped it, how he shaped the seal of the FBI, fidelity, bravery, integrity, FBI. I mean, this is all part of his efforts to help shape that image. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Ray, I have to ask you, I know this is definitely not in your book, Origins of FBI Counterintelligence, but because the, you personally worked on the some of the big cases later on during the Cold War, I would love to ask you a little bit about your own involvement in the Ronald Pelton case, because that one has come up a couple of times here on the podcast in the past. Yeah, I was blessed. The only way I can describe it. Uh, it was August 1st or so, 1985, and I was promoted from the ranks of, you know, the regular street agent to supervisor of the uh, counterintelligence squad in Baltimore. And I said, I, was, I, was no, I wasn't there no more than three or four days when the teletype came in, uh, codename Pazarine, P-A-S-S-E-R-I-N-E. And Pazarine was the code name for the unknown subject at NSA. Vitaly Yurchenko, KGB officer, colonel, and line KR officer, identified as having walked into the Soviet embassy in 1980. And they ran him for another three or four years. So that was my case. I was the supervisor of the case. And I think the most important 
decision I made, and I would swear to this to, to my dying day, the most important decision I made was selecting the two case agents to run it because they were geniuses. They were, <laughs> they were excellent. They were, the, they were the best of the best. You know how in your own life there are people you want to be with who give off positive energy and who are, who are competent and skilled, you know? Sure, and that, that's how I felt about these two guys. And my job was to sort to to just to supervise the case, to oversee the case. Uh, what happened was in that case. Do you have a moment to talk, and we continue? With oh, of course, absolutely. Yeah, that's what we're here for. What 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 we what happened was we had a very good special agent in charge, and I got called up to his office one day, and I went in, and there were two naval officers there. And I had to leave the room because I didn't have the clearance for what they were about to tell him. Well, what they told him was that this, whoever it was, we didn't know it was Pelton at the time, gave up Ivy Bells. Are you familiar with Ivy Bells? Yes, yes. I haven't talked about it here on the podcast before, but it's it's a famous operation, certainly. Right. Well, they, 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 he gave up Ivy Bells. So that's later on, of course, I did find out. But what our, what my what my boss did, was he said, we're not going to run this like a conventional case. So he called me in, and we're a group of us. He called in, we want the best agents in the office on this case. And you never get that. You know, you always have a, you always have 300 hitters. You have 250 hitters, you know, 220 hitters. But this, we had all 300 hitters. And we sat there for an hour and a half, and we cherry-picked all the, the best agents from the different squads in the office. And they were about, and I'm guessing here because it's been a while since I've thought about it, maybe eight or nine or ten. And my job wasn't directing them, I found. When I reflect back on it, my job was to hold them back. Hmm. You know what I mean? In other words, in other words, they were so, this was a single mission concept, and everybody knew the stakes involved in this thing. So my job was to say, yeah, they said, let's do this. I said, okay, let's do it. Let's think it through. <laughs> you know, let's walk ourselves through it. And then we had an SAC who was a wonderful SAC, God rest his soul, he was great. But he had this notion that we could talk to his wife. And that was always dangerous because we were in the covert phase of the investigation. The first time this case burst into the open was the day that we invited him to sit down with us on November 24th in Annapolis, Maryland at the Hilton Hotel. So we were in the covert phase. We couldn't talk to her. Now, they were estranged. We couldn't talk to her for fear that she would go back to him and tell him this. So I'm trying to convince my boss that she probably doesn't know anything. She probably knows nothing about it. Even though Barbara Walker, even though Barbara Walker knew a lot, she couldn't make the case for us because of the nature of an espionage. We can go, we can do another podcast and talk about that if you wish sometimes. But the nature of an espionage case is, is such that the wife isn't going to be able to do it. Well, he was insistent. So I, what I did was I knew a fellow by the name of Harry Roberts. And Harry was in the Rochester, New York resident agency. And Harry had the ticket, had the investigation on Joseph Helmich. Are you familiar with Helmich? No, I don't think so. Okay, well, Joe Helmich was a spy who spied in the 1960s while in the Army. And the Army... Not because the army didn't have good people, just couldn't make the case because of the issue of the large part of it had the issue of the Miranda warnings. Okay, we can talk about this some other time. So Harry 
basically sat down with Joe Helmich in a motel room for, a, for over three months, not every day, every other couple of days. And Harry began, began to get his confidence. And Harry began to allow Joe to loosen up. But after a while, Joe was telling him everything about it, telling him everything about the case, about what happened here, what happened there. And then, of course, our job after that, or the Bureau's job, was to go out and try to corroborate as much as we possibly could. Hmm. The bottom line here is that based on Harry's interviews of Joe, Joe Helmich was sentenced to life in prison, in, in federal prison for espionage. Now, it was Harry, because because the SAC was our boss and he was not going to take our word for it, Harry was going to leave the next day. So he didn't have to worry about having to put up with our boss. And Harry basically said, no, no. He said, it's not going to work. You've got to have, you've got to sit down with him and you've got to interview him and you've got to get a confession from him so harry went back and the boss i always i always think about this when i think my boss came called me up as always said, you know ray you're right he said we have to sit down and so everything that we did in that particular case was geared toward a moment when we're going to have to sit down and interview him and the way the agents did it was brilliant it really was they rehearsed it and rehearsed it we had role players playing pelton's role of someone who came up with this wrinkle or that wrinkle so they were always ready for a, a possibility you know of a of what he was going to say and then what they did was they sat him down and they didn't have to read him his miranda rights he they called him he was across the street and he was across the, the river in eastport they would like to talk to you they dressed down they were very, very casually dressed. We had the profilers looking at this as well. We had surveillance on him. We knew more about him than he knew about himself. And that's not arrogant saying that because we had been watching him so closely. So what we did was, and I won't go into too much detail on this, we sat him down and he, one of the agents, Dave Faulkner, literally walked him through his entire life from his birth to the moment that he called into the Soviet embassy in January of 1980. And then Dave played David Butch, Dudley Hodgson's his name, he goes by Butch. He played a, they played an audio tape for him. And Butch later told me, he said he had a cup of coffee in his hand and the coffee was spilling all over his hand because he was shaking so badly. After they played the tape and his voice is on the tape, after they ended the tape, he said, no, you may think that's me, but, but that's not me. <laughs> and Butch, Butch said, you know, he said, I did two tours in Vietnam. And I said, my hearing's not very good at all. He says, but that sure sounds like you. <laughs> oh my gosh. And they were off to the races. They were off to the races. And so we interviewed him that afternoon. And it was a beautiful afternoon in Annapolis at, at the time. So we interviewed him that afternoon. And he gave us, uh, we had to make the elements of the espionage statute. And it basically, it's pretty straightforward. National defense in, information, got to be national defense information, voluntarily given to a, a foreign power. Oh, gosh, it's been a while now. A, a foreign power or agent of a foreign power. I think those are the, those are the elements. Just maybe one more. Forgive me. I just don't remember. It's been mm -hmm. a while. But we got about three of them, you know, and and the fact that he was fully aware that it was it was it was espionage. In other words, 
In other words, he had to have guilty knowledge that he did it. If you do it by accident or something, that's not espionage. He has to voluntarily give it. That's the word, the voluntariness issue. And what happened was we, our, our game plan was to let him go because we didn't want to spook him. And we got three and we were high-fiving. And then a series of issues occurred and we had to call him back that night. So he came back that night and he was interviewed again. And that's when he said, Butch said to him, looked at him, he goes, he said, no, no, you knew this was classified, didn't you, Ron? And Ron lowered and said, he said, yeah, I know it was classified. And you knew that you were giving them classified information and it was voluntary, didn't you? And he said, yes, I did. Bingo, we got him. There you go. He, He said the whole thing right there, you know, so we arrested him right on the spot. And in fact, you know, he just died. I don't know if you read that. Yes, just two weeks ago. About a couple, yeah, about two weeks ago. Yeah, he he did his he did his full thirty years in prison, which is Hmm. life in prison. But it was quite a case. It was really a really a seminal case, and became a wonderful case study down in Quantico for counterintelligence agents. And I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of all the men and women. And it wasn't just men. All the men and women that worked on that case were just people you want to be around all the time, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, justifiably so. That what sounds like a, a pretty amazing investigation there and a successful closure because 30 years in prison for espionage, I, I don't, I'm not an expert on sentencing guidelines or anything like that, but it, it seems like a lot of times people do not get super long sentences in the U.S. for espionage. So that, that seems pretty, pretty significant to me that you were able to get 30 years for him. Right. Lipka, Lipka got 18 years. I think Michael Walker, John Walker's son, got 25 years. But he was released after 18 for good behavior. So some of them get far less. We did the, the Dolce case up at Aberdeen Proving Grounds. Dolce got 10 years. A lot goes into it. People just really don't, don't completely grasp what goes into the into the mix. So, so, yeah, some of them don't get the full the full time. Hansen will never get out, for example. He's right. got life. He's got life without parole. Same thing with Rick Ames. No, they're, they're, they're not going anywhere. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You're definitely right about that. So, well, that, that's fascinating stuff. It sounds like quite an investigation. And I, I did have an episode a while back and we talked about a guy on that one named Gennady Vasilenko. And from what I understand, he was handling Pelton for at least a period of his espionage career. Did you, do you know much about Vasilenko yourself? I, well, you're really taxing me here, my friend. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Sorry about that. Yeah. No, no, that's okay. There was very, there was very little very virtually none of the handling of him was in the United States. Hmm. What they, the way they handled him, the way they handled him was they, they sent him to Vienna. Okay. He would sit down. It was very complex. He would sit down and answer questions. They, they took him, I think, to the Soviet embassy in Vienna and it was there that he, because he no longer had access to documents, okay? So normally, you know, it's a dead drop or it was filled with documents. He had no access to documents. Mm-hmm. He, had already, he had already burned his bridges and left NSA. So what they had to do was sit down here, sit and interrogate him for long periods of time to get what was in his head, what he remembered. And they could only do that in a in in a location that was 
comfortable for them. They would never do it in the United States, never, because this is too hostile for them at the time. But they could do it in Vienna because they felt comfortable operating in Vienna. And what they did was, and I'm not an expert on this, but what they did was they had a case officer like Vasilenko, and and they would have a specialist from their version of NSA come in with questions. And I think they, the, the Pelton, I think if I remember correctly, said he never saw that person. He was always behind a wall or in another room. But Vasilenko would ask the questions and he would describe the answers and write the answers down for hours and hours and hours about what he knew about NSA and Soviet and NSA successes and lack thereof are going after against going against Soviet ciphers and super encipherment. Yeah. Wow. Well, you said I'm really taxing you, but you certainly have recalled a lot of that out of out of the decades. Yeah, wow. well, it's a case you don't it's a case you don't forget, you know, and I, oh, I'm sure. And when you wrote your notes, I, I use my my the best of my memory if I could to remember what was going on. So, yeah, so that's that's what it was all about. Sure, sure. The reason I brought up Vasilenko was that I did an episode about him and I haven't spoken to him myself. I spoke to an author who wrote about him, but Vasilenko, you know, he ended up getting arrested and spending some time in prison in Russia and then he was freed and brought back here to the U.S. in 2010 uh, as part of that prisoner exchange through Vienna, as a matter of fact. And supposedly right. he is he's somewhere in northern Virginia just living his life at this point. And that's really, really interesting to me that, you know, this major case with a serious American trader and the Russian who is handling him ends up being one of the pawns in the game between the two countries. And we take him back. So he's He's living free and clear somewhere in Northern Virginia right now, I believe. Yeah, yeah, well, it, 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 yeah, yeah it, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, how that yeah, works out. Yeah, the geopolitics, they, they change quite a bit over time. So I've, I've always wondered, I keep an eye out for him. I know what he looks like. I'm wondering if I'll ever bump into him in a store in Northern Virginia or something. <laughs> you, never, you never know. I, yeah. went, I bumped into a, uh, we worked against a, well, I won't give the name of the country, but we worked against them in, in the 1970s. After the Cold War, I bumped into them in the shoe department in Macy's at a <laughs> oh, <wow>. White Flint Mall. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, Did you speak to them at all or you just like make eye contact and move on? Yeah, yeah. No, when we had a nice conversation. We really did. Wow. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah, a yeah, lot of them happened. in the fences afterwards, didn't they? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Some did well. Some didn't do so well. But right. yeah, yeah. Anyway. Interesting stuff. Well, well, thank you, Ray. This has been tremendously informative. I really appreciate it. This has been a great conversation. So are you working on another book right now? I know you've published two along with a lot of articles on your website and elsewhere over the years. Do you have a third book in you right now? I am. I'm coming to the end of my manuscript on William Wiseband. Hmm. Okay. That name's ringing a bell. I'm trying to... Is, can you refresh my memory on who he is? Because I know that sure, name. Wiseband... William Wiseband was, in my view, and in the view of many, the worst spy in the history of this country. Oh, wow. And it's not, you know, not just because what he gave up, it's when he gave it up. Wiseband was a, he was born in 1908 in Alexandria, Egypt, and he was born to Russian Jewish parents who fled Odessa around 1906 or 1905 in the wake of the pogroms. And he came to the United States in 1925, and through a series of circumstances, he entered the Army. He was drafted into the Army, became an officer in the Army. 
He had been a courier for the KGB or the NKVD during the 30s. But then he, because of his language skills, he spoke Russian, Arabic, French, some German. And of course, he spoke English. And he was recruited into the Army Security Agency, which was the predecessor of NSA. And in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, the Army, along with the British, were reading many super-enciphered Soviet military communications real-time. And then in 1948, he gave it all up to the Russians. And they call it Black Friday. Excuse me. They call it Black Friday because we were reading this stuff real time. We knew the disposition of Soviet forces. We knew in Europe, we knew their order of battle. Now, remember, this is all occurring during the uh, Berlin Air, airlift. It's all occurring in the run up to the uh, Korean War. It's all occurring with, with, in connection with communist takeover of the Prague government, of the Czech government. So there's a lot going on at this time. And it happens in 1948 over a series of months. Some say it's a series of about a week, but it's simply called Black Friday. His story has been airbrushed right out of history. Now, there's never been a book written on him, and I'm just about finished with it. Not the first draft. I'm, I'm just about finished with the book right now. And he did it purely for money, hmm. purely for money. He was a gambler. He was, today we would call him a serial gambler or a compulsive gambler. He needed money all the time. He couldn't control himself. So he, he gave this up. He was a linguist. He wasn't a technician. He wasn't a, a crippy. He was a, a Russian linguist. So he was very important to ASA during these early this early period of its formation. So, yeah, so that's almost finished. Great. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to that, too, because I can I can tell that it's exactly the kind of book that I enjoy reading. So I'll definitely pick it up as soon as it's out. So, Ray, is where can people get in touch with you right now or read more of your writings if they want to after they listen to this episode? Well, I, I, I post a lot of my writings on FBIstudies.com. If they can contact me through LinkedIn, at, which is FBIstudies.com. And uh, yeah, so have them contact me anytime. That'd be just fine. I'd love to talk to people and, and discuss these matters with them. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very glad that we got in touch. This has been a great conversation and I look forward to future ones as well, especially after your Weissman books comes out. That sounds right up my alley, like I mentioned. So that'd um, be great. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks very again. Much, thanks thanks very much for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. We'll definitely stay in touch after this. So uh, you take care. Okay. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my pages on Instagram at Spycraft 101 and at cold.war.stamps. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The stories and statements expressed herein are experiences and opinions. They may not reflect the views of the host or the production studio. It's okay if you disagree with our content. No piece of media is right for everyone. If you love Spycraft 101, please check us out online, on Instagram, on YouTube, and especially on Patreon. Thank you for listening.